amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success. And practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes, and now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, today. Uh, obviously, we just have such a big show for you because we uh, will have Kay Sprinkle Grace. No, you don't have to check your calendar. No, this is not our holiday show. Uh, Kay is always here in December, and she will be back in December. Uh, but today, uh, we actually have the opportunity uh, to share with you an incredible honor so richly deserved uh, and earned, and that is that Kay Sprinkle Grace has been named the 2020 Outstanding Fundraising Professional of the Year by the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Uh, so we will have Kay Sprinkle Grace here with us. And, of course, we'll be asking her what are her secrets to success and how do you uh, get yourself uh, to be such a stellar member of the fundraising community as to be named the Outstanding Fundraising Professional of uh, the Year. Uh, those of you who are new to our show, we always start off uh, with our Page uh, One News. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to head right on over there now. It's my pleasure to uh, introduce you to Ashley Gatewood, who is the Communications and Marketing Manager at CFR International. Uh, Ashley has been our guest here before, and uh, today uh, she's going to be sharing with us the CFRE Minutes. Ashley, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Bring us up to date. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's been a pretty wild week for fundraising and fundraisers, but we at CFRE are still seeing applications come in, which is great. Our next application deadline is April 15th, and I did want to remind people that if they felt perhaps in uncertain times, like maybe it wasn't the best thing to submit their application with so many unknowns, that from the time your application is approved, you have one year to sit for the exam. So there's a lot of flexibility with that. And it's also a great time right now while folks are stuck at home and have some extra time on their hands to earn the education points that they might be looking for for their CFRE application. Webinars count, audio recordings from conferences count, virtual trainings, all that good online fundraising content um, in the sem seminars and trainings, they all count towards there. So if folks want to keep their career on track and keep plugging away, it's a great time to make that investment so it'll be poised for when things return to normal. Well, we certainly all hope that things uh, will return uh, to normal. Uh, we just don't know when. Um, how are the numbers looking uh, over at CFRE? 
Very good, actually. I will be announcing tomorrow everybody that became a CFRE in our most recent testing window, and I'm really pleased to say we had 209 new CFREs, which is tracking with how our test windows did last year. So massive kudos to everybody that between January 15th and March 15th this year became a CFRE. That's terrific. Ashley Gatewood, a Communications Marketing Manager at CFRE International, uh, thank you for joining us. And as always here on the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, we encourage all of our listeners who can qualify to sit for the CFRE exam that you certainly should consider that. And you can find out more information at CFRE.org. Next up here on page one is Ada Kolar. Is here with us, and Ida, you are. Um, do I have the idea? Idea. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, you are coming in uh, from us for Candid, uh, which is the combined entities of the Foundation Center and GuideStar. Uh, welcome here to the nonprofit coach, and please bring us up to date on the work of Candid. Thanks so much, Ted. I'm really excited to be on your show. We have a lot of things that are going on right now at Candid. Um, one of them is that we just last week created a coronavirus pop-up webpage, and that's just because we noticed that our sector and the world at large is having so much difficulty right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. And so we created the webpage. Anyone can go to it. It's www.candid.org forward slash coronavirus. And the goal of it is to share the philanthropic response to this pandemic. The webpage automatically updates with the latest data, with news from all around the world. And so people should go there if they want to know where the money is going and how and find out the latest information um, from organizations. And so it just really helps with collaboration and decision-making in times of crisis. So that's our That's terrific. Our and I'm looking at uh, your page right right now, and you've got uh, mm-hmm. uh, $1.3 billion is the value of the grants from 178 funders. That sounds like quite a good response. Yeah, yeah it is. And, and the data comes from both from data that we've been able to get online, but also data that our funders are um, sharing freely with us. So really devoted to transparency and helping to make the situation better. And so, like I said, we're continuing to update it, so continue to go back there for for more information. And so um, on a lighter note, our 2020 seals of transparency are almost here. So they're coming out at the end of the week, so watch, you know, your emails and social media. And so it's you know, it's just for organizations that they should update their profiles. You know, the most important thing is to make sure that finances are from 2018 or 2019. And for people who want the platinum seal of transparency to have um, financials from 2019. And so we have some new options that are going to be available that organizations can choose from. One of them that I'm particularly excited about is the um, Sustainable Development Goals that the UN had created back in 2015. So organizations can add, um, they're called SDGs, they can add SDGs to their profile page on GuideStar. So that's really, really cool. Um, we also that is very cool. Um, as uh, as mm-hmm. many of our listeners know, I also serve as President and CEO of uh, CAF America Donor Advised Funds, and uh, we code every grant that we make to the SDGs. So it's really terrific to see that uh, uh, the charities that are on Candid, uh, on GuideStar, uh, can also now begin showing the SDGs that they support. That's really terrific. Exactly. Yeah, that's the goal, just continuing to make it better. And so, you know, look forward to, to uh, you updating the profile. Um, on, on our website and, and other people adding their SDGs as well. It will be great to see. So um, another thing that we recently launched is our Philanthropy in East Africa website. And we did that. It's been a partnership of more than four years with the East Africa Philanthropy Network. And so it's an in-depth website, and it highlights the philanthropic work that's going on in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. 
because there's been so much work that's been going on for decades, but um, not as much efficiency. People didn't know what everyone was doing, wasn't as much interaction. And so this website that we created with the East Africa Philanthropy Network really helps to make things more transparent and easier for people to see where things are going and where they can contribute more. Um, so we're really excited about that one. It's been a, a long time that we've been working on that, but it, it, it's up and running now. So that's another one. Um, and another thing that we've done is we created a nonprofit startup assessment tool. And the tool is for people who are considering creating a nonprofit or they're already in the early stages of starting a nonprofit. And so it has a range of questions on all different areas and people fill it out, and then once the assessment is complete, the results are customized um, to help them have the best resources that they need to create their nonprofit. Um, so those are some of the things that we've recently launched on our end, and with the 2020 Fields of Transparency, that's almost here. And then obviously just organization-wise, we're continuing to create um, our candid brand and, and meld everything really well. So that's always a that's challenge awesome. to create a new new brand. Uh, as our listeners know, uh, the Nonprofit Coach Podcast and Candid Foundation Center and GuideStar have a, a longstanding partnership. Idea Kolar, it's so great to have you with us. Uh, you're the communications and outreach manager uh, at Candid. These are very important updates, and again, uh, we encourage all of our listeners to go to Candid. Uh, .org and to seek out and to uh, qualify for uh, the uh, transparency seals uh, of approval. Um, those are very important indicators to funders and to uh, the uh, sector uh, in terms of the work that you do and the transparency of your efforts. So again, Idea, thank you so much for being here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. All right, we are done with uh, page one, so that means it is time for page two. We are over here on page two. That means it's time for Kay Sprinkle Grace, uh, who has been named the 2020 Outstanding Fundraising Professional by the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and to help us introduce this, we have a special guest. Special guest, I'm going to allow you to introduce yourself uh, and take us into this amazing discussion of the career of Case Sprinkle Grace. Hi, Ted. This is Mike Geiger, President and CEO of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. What, what a great opportunity what? you have to be sitting down with, with Kay and, and, and talking about her career and and what she's thinking these days. It's, it's, it's such a fantastic opportunity for you and all your listeners. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming to, to uh, join us uh, today, and I want you to be able to uh, have a little bit of a, of a dialogue uh, with Kay, so we're going to bring her in from the green room in, in, uh, in just a second. Uh, but could you start off, uh, Mike, first of all, of telling us what is the Outstanding Fundraising Professional Award? Yeah, so this is actually the highest honor that we at AFP bestow on any of our members, and we don't do it lightly. <clears throat> and we do it to recognize effective, creative, and stimulating leadership, as well as the practice and promotion of ethical fundraising. So really the, the key tenets of, of what AFP is all about. And there's no doubt in our mind that Kay exemplifies all these traits and characteristics. In fact, when we told Kay of this honor, she said, my commitment to the philanthropic sector and its capacity to engage communities in visionary solutions to chronic societal issues and to the enrichment of our lives has never been stronger. Well, we know Kay very well here on The Nonprofit Coach, and it will not surprise you at all, uh, Mike, to know that her annual holiday show here on The Nonprofit Coach uh, is one of the highest rated annual shows 
that we have here on the Nonprofit Coach. So why don't we uh, go ahead and bring Kay in uh, from the green room. Uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace is here with us. So I'm going to let the two of you chat a little bit. And I know, Mike, you want to personally uh, congratulate uh, uh, Kay since uh, the conference that she would have been awarded at, unfortunately, due to coronavirus, uh, had to uh, had to cancel. So Mike and Kay, take it away. Hi Kay, how are you? Oh Mike, I am I am I cannot tell you how delighted I am to hear your voice this morning. Uh oh. and to say again thank you for honoring me in this way. I I am so awestruck by this honor and that you would take time today when I know you are trying to get the international conference virtually presented in a few weeks, and I'm extremely grateful. Well, Kay, when, when I when I heard that you were going to be on the show, and and Ted and his team reached out to me, I, I looked at my calendar, and it was just totally booked, and it really was was something I wanted to try to do, and so I tried to rearrange my schedule and. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, but then when the when I had that window, I reached out because I really wanted to be here and and to congratulate you in person. Um, on on a more personal level, I can just say to everybody that that since I joined AFP two and a half years ago, Kay has become someone that I seek out for guidance whenever possible. In fact, Kay and I recently spent an hour or more together in San Francisco, where where Kay, you graciously let let me lean on you on your experience and your wisdom in the context of AFP's ongoing commitment to leadership development. And, and I, have, I have referred to that conversation and my notes from that day um, so many times in, I think, what has only been like the last month since I met with you. But mm-hmm. I, yeah. I'm just, I am just grateful for, for your support, your friendship, um, your support of AFP, but even more importantly, your support of the sector of, of fundraising. You, you are a, a true... Um, a true leader and, and someone who is on the on the fundraising Mount Rushmore. Oh well, thank you. I I also I just want to say that I am quite inspired by the direction that AFP is going right now, uh, looking at things that need to be looked at, and I think inspiring people to become more involved, but aspiring to reinvent itself in a time when philanthropy is changing as fast as everything else in our world. And it's one of the reasons that I enjoy our conversation so much. So I appreciated that that hour in San Francisco greatly, as did you. Thank you very much. Thank Ted, you, Mike. Thank you for the opportunity, Ted, to, to be on your call and, and congratulate and just have a moment, moment with Kay, one of my favorite people. <laughs> Yeah, oh, Mike, we we agree with you, and it is, uh, means an awful lot to us here at the Nonprofit Coach to be able to host Kay today, but also to have you uh, come on to uh, sort of virtually bestow the award uh, on her and to uh, to let all of us know uh, just uh, why AFP uh, chose her for this award. So uh, that's uh, Mike Geiger, President and CEO of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Uh, thank you for coming on and uh, sharing such uh, wonderful, warm thoughts about uh, our, our guest here today, Kay Sprinkle Grace. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your conversation. Take care. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. It won't surprise our listeners that uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace, of course, always, uh, even when she's being honored, even when the show is all about her greatness, uh, she comes prepared with content. Um, and uh, and so uh, today uh, Kay has uh, prepared for us, and I'm, I'm very eager for her to share with us uh, the 10 most important things that she has learned in her very auspicious uh, career. And, and Kay, this is just, uh, as I'm reading down through this, I can't wait for you to share this with us and sort of give us the story behind the story on, on each of these 10. But, you know, just first of all, I mean, just what a great career that you have had, but also to look back on, on that career and to be able to pinpoint 10 of the most important things. This may be one of the most important reads for anyone who joins the fundraising profession. Well, thank you. I I was actually quite excited when you suggested like a 10 things and I it really gave me pause and since in you know love in the time of cholera, fundraising in the time of COVID-19, I had the time to really sit and think about it. So 
I actually was inspired this morning as I was looking at how would I summarize all of this if I needed to. And I guess I would say that what I have learned is that, and I popped it up to the top before I sent you this list, is that this is truly a remarkable profession. We are so lucky to be in this profession because the kind of outreach we can do, the kind of lives we can change, the people we engage with, the, the philanthropic world of the United States of America is so impressive. And Ted, you work around the world, I work around the world, and you know that people look to us for the patterns of philanthropy. And That's how right. do we do this? It is our finest social export. And of all the things that we do, this is the most unique that we do. And I feel so fortunate, and I came into it like many people of, of my era did, quite by accident. I mean, this was not a profession, you know. Well, that I, I find it interesting, Kay, that, that you say in, in what you prepared for me here is that the profession chose you yeah, and did. that you're grateful. But, but what does it mean what that does the that profession mean? chose you? Well, yeah. it means that I came in as a volunteer because I love my university and I love my community and I started volunteering and particularly at Stanford. And um, I was, I'm educated as a journalist and my master's is in education. And so I was on a completely different career path. And then my career path took a severe detour um, due to the, I was an educational administrator and they basically just zeroed out all of our jobs as the tax base in California a few years after Prop 13 uh, diminished. And so I found myself without a job, and I met one day for lunch with my friends from Stanford where I had already chaired nationally five programs, and they said, have you ever thought of going into this as a profession? And I said, what, get paid for what I've been giving away? And they said, yeah, you know, you'd really be good at it. And that was November, and by January I had my first job and the rest is history. I got into it, you know, the old proverb, you know, the duck to water. It was something that I found thrilled me on several levels. First of all, from a skills standpoint, I had been a teacher. I continue to teach. I had been a writer. I continue to write. I had been a facilitator. I was trained in organization development by the school district when we were doing school closures. I knew how to facilitate. I got connected with the fundraising school with Hank Rosso. It allowed me to kind of burn in gradually to the teaching side of it. And I Kay, tell you, Kay, can I jump in? Can, can I sure. jump in and just ask you to share uh, with our our um, our listeners a bit about who Hank Rosso is? I mean, for sure. those of us who have been around for a while, you know, it, it, Hank Rosso is one of those people that you say needs no introduction. However, I do feel that, that sort of fundraising has progressed, uh, time has marched on to the point where Hank Rosso uh, and achieving excellence in fundraising are things that perhaps for uh, a more recent uh, uh, population within the fundraising profession maybe does need an explanation. Yeah, and you know, we do a biennial Hank Rosso forum in San Francisco, and there's very few people in our audience who knew of Hank Rosso. So we take the time to explain who he was. Succinctly, he was the first disruptor of philanthropy. He became involved in philanthropy as a, as a gifts officer at Syracuse University after World War II. He was a veteran, and um, then he went to work for a consulting company. And while he was consulting with organizations, he got this amazing idea. He said, why don't we teach organizations how to do their own fundraising? Why don't we work with boards and staff? And his boss suggested that perhaps that would be a good way to put the consulting company out of business. So Hank thought, well, okay. And so he went home and told his wife that he was going to start the fundraising school, which I'm not sure she thought was a good idea at the time since they had four young children. But it all worked. And the fundraising school uh, became quite a force in terms of education of professionals. Uh, they've they have literally trained just hundreds of thousands of people by now in terms of training people who then trained other people. And um, he uh, sadly uh, succumbed to Alzheimer's, but not before 
uh, he had uh, basically transferred the fundraising school to what became the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy uh, at Indiana University, and it's now a fully functioning service arm of the Lilly School of Philanthropy. But that was all started by Hancroft. And, of course, the Lilly School itself has become really a, a benchmark of excellence uh, in the fundraising profession. That's exactly so right. that was sort of a, a match a match made uh, in heaven. So uh, so I, I interrupted you on on. No, on it's Hank okay. Russell. Well, that's, so that's my that's story. It did choose me, yeah. and it was just an incredible experience. I, I told somebody the other day, I said, and I've become a full-service farmer. And they looked at me, and I said, I plant seeds through my lectures, my workshops, my retreats, all of that. I till the soil, so that's my capital campaigns that I'm working, in fact, on three right now, and I harvest that planting, and that's what I do in my, still in my volunteer work. I'm on uh, two boards, and I love every bit of it. I love giving back, and I also feel that one of the things that, that AFP does can encourage also is our giving back, and in terms of the CFRE, it's a requirement. You know, it's one of the things that we fill out on the on the form. So the second thing uh, that I um, realized as I was doing this list, I go back again to uh, the fundraising school, and we used to extract a quotation of John D. Rockefeller Jr., who once advised some poor soul who had asked him for a gift. Um, and apparently done it in the way that makes all of us shudder. You know, I'm sure you don't want to give, or I'm sorry to have to ask you, but... And what John D. Rockefeller said to the young person was, you must substitute pride for apology. Pride in what the impact of this gift will mean. And that, for me, became a very strong teaching principle. It was in our master materials uh, for the fundraising school. And I think it's something I hear too often people kind of apologizing for the fact that they have to raise this money. And you know, Ted, that one of my primary tenets is that people give because you meet needs, not because you have needs. There is no sense of begging or anything else. We are robust proud organizations that are making a difference in our communities, in our country, and in the world, and we never need to apologize for asking for money. We're not asking them to give us money. We're asking them to make an investment in their community's future. So that's my point number two. Number three well, and is... And as we've shared on this sure. show together so so many times, Kay, is you know, yes. needing money is not good enough. Get in line. No. So does everybody else. That's right. um, it's you know the case that you can make, and I and I think you're absolutely right. That ties back to the pride of the the program, the opportunity that you have to share the story, the opportunity that you have to invite people to join the journey. Yeah, and you know, Ted, just a little sidebar on that. In some of the conversations I've been having with AFP uh, and also just with Mike. Um, we are also in danger as a profession of apologizing, uh, and I think that what we need to realize is that we are, in fact, just so important in terms of being a catalyst for investment in the community, and leadership, I think, has two parts for this profession going forward. One is how proud we feel ourselves. In other words, that we feel pride for being in this profession, for doing what we do. But the other thing is that the community feels that same sense of pride and admiration for having strong professionals in their community doing this work. And I think that this will become evident as we go through this this very major surge that we've got right now in terms of fundraising in the time of COVID-19. Um, well, it's an, it's an important time, and we're certainly seeing here at uh, the Cap America Donor Advised Fund, you know, a surge, uh, particularly from our corporate supporters, uh, in wanting to make a difference. And, and of course, this is a global pandemic. Uh, That's so right. They're, they're uh, directing their philanthropy around the world. Exactly. Uh, the third point that I had was that I don't think 
I hear too often the word donation. And donation is an extremely passive a way to describe somebody's gift. If you can't go all the way to investment, which, and you know, Ted, when I published my first book, Beyond Fundraising, in 1987, I mean, I've done editions since, but 1987, the title of the book is Beyond Fundraising, New Strategies for Innovation and Investment in Nonprofits. I had people in 1987 say, how could you put the word investment on the cover of a fundraising book? And I would say, wait a minute, look at the title. It's beyond fundraising because beyond fundraising is investment. People still struggle with it. They're a lot better with it. But let us remember that it is, we, at least we must call them gifts because once they become donations, it's passive. It does not imply that we need to keep these people involved. And more than that, we also have the, the like the tiny sense of obligation. Well, they should be giving. No, you know what? Philanthropy is voluntary action for the public good. Voluntary mm-hmm. is the operative word. Yeah. I don't have to give. Emphasis, emphasis on, on, on voluntary, that's right. Absolutely. I don't have to give ask, join, or serve any organization I don't want to. Um, The fourth, and you've heard me say this before, but I would not let this morning go by without (laughs) saying it again. We are not charities. Gifts to us are charitable deductions, but what we have is a new market. And in the new market, that word does not work. And I'm, as you know, I operate out of the northern outpost of Silicon Valley. And I can tell you that it's not about charities. And when are we going to call ourselves what we are, which is public benefit corporations? Uh, The late Peter Hero, who I think you knew, who was the kind of the founding CEO of the Santa Clara Community Foundation that became Silicon Valley Community Foundation, you know, I mean, he said, we're the only part of the economy that defines ourselves by what we're not. Well, what are you? Well, we're nonprofits. Well, yeah, but what are you? So we need to define ourselves, and maybe in defining ourselves, we will feel more poised for the role, the leadership role that we have already taken, but I don't think have been recognized for. And and I think that if we could just um, dismiss that from our vocabulary, and yet some of our major publications, which will go nameless on the on this program, continue to call us charities, and I it yeah, simply. Knocks me out. Yeah, and Kay, sometimes I, I really feel, and I think it's a point that you're making, is that we're, we almost become our own worst enemies um, because, you know, we, we sort of carry in, in the phrases of nonprofit and charitable and deductive deductions and, uh, and all of these different phrases, and it really is astounding to me at how few sort of average Americans, average donors, actually understand those concepts. You know, yeah, the, it's the, so, so the, true. A, yeah. a, a not-for-profit, they would think, and 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 some charities, uh, some nonprofits uh, certainly uh, encourage them to think. Well, there shouldn't be a profit. Um, that you know, that no one should get paid. It should all be volunteer. Right. <laughs> however, however, it should have you know. Fort Knox level of security and cybersecurity and, uh, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs level of accounting, and it should be absolutely unimpeachable and completely transparent. However, nobody should get paid and nothing should be done. So, you know, in, in, in fostering that kind of And God forbid you end up with a surplus, Ted. That's, that's right. That's and right. put that into and, an and operating reserve. Saying, well, wait a minute. That's right. Rather than saying yeah. that these are corporations created for the public good, and That's provide right. services that, by their very nature, are not profit, but yes, certainly exactly. need to run well. Yeah, and and I think that you know we we just we do ourselves no favor by not being more intentional and and transparent about the fact. I mean, I always say to people, oh, okay, 
so then who are the who are the which are the organizations that raise the most money in the US? Oh god, yeah, Harvard and Stanford. And I said, and do you think they have reserves? Do you think they have billions in their endowment? Well, yeah, but that's different. And I said, why is that different? I said they are still providing for the students that they need to serve as a commitment to their mission. Anyway, That's it right. is. Thank you for su- your support on that. And it's and the fifth one that I had I had named uh, was the fact that we've got to start using that word philanthropy. Um, this word was so unusual in our vocabulary when I started out in this. You know, in in 1980 when I made the shift over uh, to being a professional, and you hardly ever heard the word philanthropy. In fact, I remember an early. Um, probably it was um, Indiana University before there was the School of Philanthropy and as the center was forming, the Center for Philanthropy was forming, they had um, a series of symposia and in one of them they did this funny, funny video and showed it. And it was a man on the street thing, you know, what's a philanthropist? Oh, well that's, oh I, I know, that's a man that cheats on his wife. Uh, you know, what's a philanthropist? Oh, uh, that's somebody who studies fish. You know, I mean, it was hysterically funny. And at the same time, the New Yorker or somebody ran this cartoon that just showed this ditzy woman, and I'm glad we get away from ditzy women in cartoons these days, saying to somebody, oh, you're a philanthropist. My husband collects stamps, too. And <laughs> It was. It showed that at that time, it was an awkward word for us. It was awkward. But now I am so delighted to see that as we've had these philanthropists, you know, falling behind Buffett and Gates and Soros and, and Turner and all of these giants, and now bringing up the rear, we have those that are profiled in Michael Moody's wonderful book. You should have him on your program. Uh, Michael Moody wrote this book, yeah. yeah, with Generation Impact. Oh my gosh, you know this is the same thing. What is it? They had the courage to say what inspires our giving is our personal values. Seventy percent of our decisions are based on those personal values. We are philanthropists, and remember that the meaning of philanthropy is love of humankind. And here's something else that you know how much I believe is that. I don't think we should ever be called fundraisers. I think that we are fundraising professionals, and I am so honored by this award that I'm getting and so pleased that it's called the Fundraising Professionals. But you and I know that what we really are are dream brokers. We are That's really right. dream and we've brokers. we've talked about that we've on talked this show about that so many times. And, and, I, and I, think, I think that that is a, you know, a turning point in the career of a professional, is when you not only can hear those words, but you can live those words. That's right, exactly. And we listen for the dreams in the community. We match them with the dreams of our organization, and that's what we do. And we are catalysts. We operate on the exchange principle. We help people get something in return for something that we value. They get something they value. And it is an exchange process. That's what this is all about. The seventh one, it's the secret Okay, thought. I'm going to jump in right Here we there. Go. We're, we're, we're going to take a, a quick break. And okay. when we come back, uh, just as a teaser, uh, when we come back, uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace is going to share uh, with us number seven uh, and through to ten on the ten most important things that Kay Sprinkle Grace has learned uh, in her career. And we'll be right back. Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas 
and Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here with Kay Sprinkle Grace, the 2020 Outstanding Fundraising Professional, uh, as honored by the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Kay, uh, you, this is what, we've had some amazing shows, as you know, some of the highest rated shows uh, ever on the Nonprofit Coach uh, podcast. But I think this one is truly special because you are sharing with us today the 10 most important things that you have learned in your absolutely amazing career. So pick it up, number seven. Okay, well, that's where I reveal the secret sauce, Ted. And the secret sauce is passion. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm a pretty passionate person and that um, I, I live my life by two values, joy and gratitude. And it's the joy that really inspires me, but it is the passion that keeps me moving forward always to new ideas and new opportunities. And I think that when we are bogged down in our work, when we're feeling unrewarded, unappreciated, unaccepted, I think that the passion is the first to go. And I think that what we have to do is learn that our networks are very important. If your AFP chapter is a good network for you, then network. If you have friends, network. To keep your passion up, talk about what you're doing. Talk about how it excites you. Create your own forum, if you will, if it doesn't exist in your workplace, but also as a leader, Try to infuse others with the passion. I've, I wrote a book just recently called Transform Your Board into a Fundraising Force. And there, again, the, the secret sauce is passion. And if boards are not passionate, if we don't infuse our boards with passion by revealing mission moments uh, during our board meetings and making sure that we really take care of them, that we really steward them, it not only diminishes their passion, but then their diminished passion diminishes our passion. But... I, I just recall a very prominent donor here in San Francisco telling me once that, you know, when somebody calls me and you can tell I'm just a name on a list and there's no excitement and it's like, oh, yeah, I've got to call you. I'm sure you don't want to give. She said, I don't give. You know, but if somebody calls me and they're enthusiastic and passionate, then I will respond. So keep the passion up. Uh, the eighth one is that I have found that I have been on three ships in my journey, and I continue to be on those ships. The first one is leadership um, of self, of organization, of community, and profession. Um, I have done a lot of work in leadership development, and I have continued to work on my own leadership development. And I find that that ship is the, is the lead ship, if you will. Partnership is the other one that I find is extremely important. I, we can't operate in silos. We've had discussions about this, Ted, uh, that the philanthropic sector, uh, sector is a very hard word, and it also means almost means that we're in a silo, separated from business and government. We're not. It should be a permeable uh, boundary. And, in fact, my idea about silos is, turn them on their sides, and make them into pipelines so that we are all working together, the flow of information, the flow of resources, and that we tackle these things together. Uh, the partnership with donors, other organizations, other visionaries, and the last ship, no surprise, is stewardship. Uh, we all too often put all of our energy into getting the gift and not as much energy or sometimes no energy into thanking people and keeping people engaged. And in my, in my book, um, the, the High Impact Philanthropy, uh, the models there between transactional and transformational giving really make that point. The ninth one, and this is a personal one, when people ask me what is the attribute that you look for most when you are helping a client hire 
a new development officer. <clears throat> and my response is that that person is flexible. And we cannot be rigid, dogmatic, or unable to listen. We have two ears and one mouth. And if we use them in that ratio, we stay flexible because we get input that may disrupt a preconceived idea that we have, but it may be a better idea. And we need to be flexible. Uh, when I see people struggling in their work, it's often because they are inflexible. They have come in with my way or the highway, or this is what we did at my other organization, and we're going to do it here. And you know what? It doesn't work. And just stay flexible, listen, respond, and just remember that every minute of every day has the potential for embracing a new idea that can make all the difference in the world. <laughs> and hey, can you help us? I, I love this notion of stay flexible, but it reminds me of, of other concepts that we've talked about here on the Nonprofit Coach. And I was wondering if you could sort of help us divine uh, through this statement that, you know, a professional is going to study and understand what has made others successful, but they're not going to use someone else's playbook. What That's does right. that mean? And how, how, how do you divine that? Can I just pick up and do what others do because they were successful? Well, I suppose you could. And I think unless it's, you know, unless it is intellectual property, uh, and, and we've had that issue with people, you know, helping themselves. But I think for the most part, I think that's one of the roles we have. I mean, how many people have you influenced in your life just by working with them and them looking at you and seeing how you do things? How many people have I influenced? How many people have, you know, other people in our field influenced by modeling the kind of things that work. But what I'm saying is it's not so much the idea or the program or the way to do something exactly. What it is is more along the problem solving and the design thinking. We had an experience last October, Ted, uh, I, you know, six years ago uh, with uh, two friends from Czech Republic, um, our, our chair from Slovakia, and our Canadian colleague, uh, Tony Myers, we started Leaders of Tomorrow, which is an, an incredible program funded by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for six years, and in which we have engaged um, leaders from civil society in post-Soviet and other Central and Eastern European countries. And one of the things that we have really discovered there is that because culturally there tends to be less flexibility, that a lot of things are more set, if you will, that their approach to problem solving, when I introduced like a, a section on problem solving, they were very, very interested in it and they really got into it because it was a different way of looking at a problem and discerning the problem before you came up with a solution because the tendency is, oh, I know how to fix that. Sure, I can fix that. But this last year, because of a, a suggestion by the Mott Foundation, we, in fact, I did a mini design thinking. And design thinking, of course, is when you, you really drill down to what is the issue that needs to be solved and how can we solve it collectively. And I have to tell you that that afternoon was just breakthrough. Um, and particularly in the dynamics of the group, uh, we had two participants from Russia and um, I think that for them, it was a way that they actually got closer uh, to the participants from Bulgaria, Serbia, Czech Republic. We even had somebody from Brazil, and uh, which I realize is not in Central and Eastern Europe, but it is facing issues in civil society. But my point is, is that it was a breakthrough for them to realize that there were no formulas that when you put, and here's where it comes back to philanthropy, Ted, is that the whole issue with design thinking, as IDEO and others have, have really crafted it so that it becomes a workable program globally, is that you put 
the humanity at the center always. You solve problems for the betterment of the people who are the subject of the issue. And I think if we can do that, then what we will be able to dramatically shift from is something that has worried me about our sector as it begins to rethink some of its, uh, its priorities and how it operates. And that is simply this, that it's not about our organization, it's about the people we serve. So when people said to me when I, an arts organization years ago in the East Bay was in danger of going under and did, and they said, oh, my God, you know, all those people are going to be out of work. And I said, you know what's, what really the issue is here? How are we going to continue to serve the children who have no other resource in this community for exposure to the arts? That became then the avenue to creating partnerships with other organizations because when you focus on that mission, that human or societal need that you're meeting, rather than who's delivering the mission, then that's when you really begin to work into philanthropy, the love of humankind, and what can we do to make this planet better for everybody. Okay, that, of course, is you know, the, the crux of, of how your mind works, I think, is that um, you, know, you don't just think of it in terms of money needed, but the root of the problem and the partnerships that can be brought uh, together um, so in, in your career, um, can, can you give us a sense of just if, if I'm a new development officer, if I have uh, a budget to meet, um, how do I uh, approach this uh, with sort of a, a, an innovative eye or an informed eye as I'm just trying to get my career underway? Sure. I, I think that... The first thing you have to do is assess your resources. What do you have in order to create what you need? And if you don't have the right people, you know, I'm a big Jim Collins fan, as you know, Ted, and you've got to get the right people on the bus. And so if you're entry level, you're not going to be able to do that, but if you come in at the development director job, you know, it's not to say that you're going to, you know, topple heads the minute you get in there, but assessing your resources is really important. But remember that we should do our planning in nonprofits, not by looking in the mirror, but by looking through the windows. Because our world is out there beyond our windows. That's who we serve. That's the reason we exist. I am such an advocate of listening, of getting groups of people together. And, and when I'm new in a job, and when I took my first job in the profession, I really, I was welcomed because everybody in the organization just happened to know me because of my Stanford connection. But beyond that, I cannot tell you, Ted, even as young and naive as I was, that I went out, I had meetings with people, I asked people to come together, I asked people to come to our facility and sit around the table and talk with me. I learned so much that I really think it's one of the things that kind of jump-started my effectiveness, even in that first position, was that they felt heard. They felt as though their feedback was important to me. I was not just paying lip service. So if I were a, a professional just starting out, I would assess my resources, I would listen to the community, and then I would do very, very diligent but not obsessive planning because we're living in a world where obsessive planning, uh, you know, it's you can get as obsessed as you want, but things are going to be different. But to put a structure in place, I think a lot of us drift in our positions because there is no plan, there is no structure. And I believe that systems liberate. I think that if you have... It may, system, it may be very few... Maybe very few resources, but what's interesting to me is immediately how naturally, again, because your career has been so successful, some of the key points that it seems like you just mentioned that that almost you know just seemed sort of well, of course, is that first of all, you got up from your desk, you went out and you met people, you invited yep. them to come see things, you yep. invited them to become part of the story, part of the journey. 
And I think, again, one of the things that distinguishes a fundraiser from a, a development professional uh, is when you realize that it's less about asking for money than it is giving the opportunity to give. That's right. Uh, total, absolutely. And, I mean, my own belief is that, that if you ignite people and get them feeling like they have like a partial ownership, you know, because, wow, that was my idea. That's right. That's right. That was yeah. my idea. That are they going to, you know, keep their idea going by by investing in it? You bet. And it's the same with our boards, Ted. You know, if if we plan separately from our board and then we take the plan in and the board is going to say, fine, okay, good, good, you know, let us know how you do, you know, instead of saying, what right. can we do to help? And um, so that's really my advice to somebody starting out. Listen and be open. And, you know, for me, I didn't really have much choice because I'd come from journalism, working for a magazine and a television station and, a, and, um, and an educational, um, you know, educational resources company. But here's what happened was that I needed to be open. I knew a lot about fundraising because of my volunteer work at Stanford. And that's another point I would like to make about the importance of professionals in our field volunteering is that I don't know if you can know <laughs> what a volunteer is feeling unless you've been one. And when we look at volunteers and say, I don't understand, how come you haven't done this? Until you've been a volunteer and know what it's like to juggle you know, a job, a family, aging parents, young kids, whatever it is, and that you're actually squeezing this in, in time that maybe you'd be better spent meditating, I don't think we have the same kind of empathy. And I think one of the reasons that I have had such success in training volunteers over the years is that I've been there, and I still am there. And I just stepped down as president of a board. I know what it's like, and I know how time-consuming it can be. So my last point then is that, and it's kind of derivative of the first nine, and we did a program on this uh, last year or the year before, but we need to become more of a movement and less of a .org. And we need to be seen as a fluid, responsive, innovative sector willing to take risks. Remember that the boundaries of fear are risk and dreams. And whichever way we, I'm sorry, the boundaries of risk are fear and dreams. And the boundaries of risk are what inhibit us. And if we veer to fear, which is what we could easily be doing right now, then we will be inhibited. But if we keep our dreams primary on our horizon, then we will be able to inch our way, if not leap our way, towards those dreams. And so what I still maintain from 1987 forward is that we have to go beyond fundraising and convey to our communities and constituents that we encourage transformational investment not just transactional giving. We have to help people utilize their financial investment portfolios to enrich their social investment portfolios. It's a simple idea, but it requires a belief that we are a movement, that we have the power to transform society. And you look at all the areas, Ted, where our poor little planet needs so much help, and whether it's public health like right now or whether it's climate or whether it is education, whether it is immigration, whether it is people living in refugee camps who are now impacted by the education issue, the public health issue, we have a role to play. And it's a role that should be a movement because we should be partnering with governments, with local governments, with corporations. And that's why when we see these corporations and others stepping forward right now, I am filled with hope that we will, you know, resolve the fallout from this dreadful pandemic that we're in. 
but also that we will inspire people to know that this is one of the most valued and valuable movements in history, the movement towards philanthropy, that love of humankind, because at the end of the day, Ted, that's all that matters. And that is all that matters. In case Sprinkle Grace, the 2020 Outstanding Fundraising uh, Professional of the Year, has been our guest here on the Nonprofit Coach. Kate, thank you uh, for breaking out of your, your holiday show that everybody looks so forward to and giving us an opportunity to celebrate you and celebrate your career and the wonderful advice that you always give us, uh, but also the, the terrific work and effort uh, that you've put into uh, being the Outstanding Fundraising Professional of the Year. Congratulations, Kate Sprinkle Grace. Thank you, Ted, and thank you for inviting me this morning. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.